0: He e tēnei nā te reo irirangi o
1: I just love seeing how it changes. It's exciting to come back every time and be like, "Oh, what's what's going to be there this time? What's what's happening? Are there?" Are the birds going to be here? Are they going to be nesting? You know, is it going to be uh, turbid in the main braid or is it going to be cooking? And it's always kind of a surprise, even where the main braid's going to be. Every time I come here, it's in a different spot. Yeah, it's pretty unique and special. You don't get these rivers many places in the world.
0: Kia ora, no mai haramai ki te uh,
1: Hello and welcome to Our Changing World.
0: Ko and Danny. As PhD student Holly Harris said, braided rivers are uncommon worldwide, but we've got a number of them in New Zealand,
1: classed as a naturally
0: rare habitat. There are a few in the south of Ti'ikau Maui, but most are in Namu.
1: For me, a braided river is a very complex ecosystem, but in general, I guess it's a river that runs from a very steep gradient with lots of erosion in the hills and that forms a lot of sediment getting pushed through the environment and creates these big gravel beds where um, the channels shift and change and it's a lot more fluid than your single channel standard river that we think of in europe or the uk
0: if you've flown over the south island on a clear day you'll have seen them in all their glory silver snaking lines heading from the southern alps to the sea with gravel flood that can be kilometers wide where they've been permitted to roam or driving you see snapshots too
1: Big weaving channels of water and typically when we think of them we think of the really long bridges on State Highway 1 that you cross and these massive big bodies of water which are actually just one component of a braided river but that's what we see from our cars. Just one component... Because
0: instead of seeing strips of water and heaps of gravel, we maybe need to look at them through Holly's eyes and see the complex and highly variable ecosystems that they are.
1: There's a lot of um, heterogeneity or variation in the environment because of how much the channels can move and because of the bed surface, so it's gravel. And gravel is very porous, which means that you can also get springs upwelling and there's groundwater running through. And this forms a lot of different physical variation within even the water, um, but also within the surrounding land as well. So as a channel moves, it will leave a fresh patch of gravel, whereas places it hasn't been in a while, other plants start popping up um, that form new spaces for terrestrial invertebrates to live or banded doctrines to live, such as the Raulia. Beds, which are these beautiful cushioned plants with lots of different colours of greens and yellows and our native bees just love them. Holly and
0: I are sitting on a gravel bed in the middle of the Cass River, about a kilometre and a half up from where it empties into Lake Tekapo in Canterbury. She chose the Cass River to study because it still has populations of some of our endangered braided riverbirds and it's relatively easy to access, but also because it remains quite unconstrained it can do its heterogeneity thing. Because actually, this ability to shift and change is under threat for many of our braided rivers, especially those on the lowland areas where land encroachment is squeezing them, changing their very nature. Holly's PhD then is about understanding this ecosystem as a whole, so we can better conserve and manage braided rivers in the future. Now, while the dynamic nature of braided rivers is what Holly loves about them, it also makes studying them quite tricky. And this means a lot of equipment. I've joined Holly and research assistant Zoe Hamilton at the beginning of a week of fieldwork for Holly. We've parked at the end of a gravel road and the river is just a short couple of hundred metres away. But first, the job of gathering everything that's needed. Zoe is putting some plastic containers into some bags and buckets. So you're packing up a whole bunch of little pottles.
1: Yeah, so these are for the invertebrates. Yep. We're gonna get from across the transects.
0: Yeah, there's there's a heap of them. Yeah, then yeah, they've all gotta go back to the lab and be identified,
1: processed. And what are you setting up, Holly? Um, this is the electric fishing machine. So um, it's got a cathode and an anode connected to a big battery setup. And essentially it sends pulses into the water between the two that sort of contract the muscles of the fish and get them to sort of swim towards your net. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You guys are not travelling light today. No. (laughs) (laughs) A square battery backpack with buttons, wires and a long cable attached to a handheld wand. It really reminds me of the Ghostbusters proton pack.
1: I swear every time I go through everything and then we leave and we get all the way to the first channel and realise we've forgotten something. Oh. Thanks. So did you hear that bird? That's a turn. There's probably a colony um, or two already on the river. There will also be banded dot trills, they nest in here but also in the middle of the river. And rye bills. if we're lucky, there'll be a few around too. I love rye bills. they're so cute.
0: If you don't know them, ryebills, nutupare, are small pale plovers that breed only in the braided rivers of the South Island and are the only bird in the world with a bill that curves laterally. It always curves to the right and they use it to reach small insects under rounded riverbed stones. With the equipment list now ticked off, sunscreen applied and waders on, we set off to the first river channel where Holly talks Zoe and I through the plan.
1: We start by putting the instruments in and I usually put them quite a bit upstream. if we, We're going to fish just so that they're out of the way but th- that way they get up to temperature and sort of settled while we're doing all the other stuff. So what's the instruments
0: that you're going to put in?
1: Um, so we measure dissolved oxygen, temperature, pH, um, conductivity, light <laughs> and turbidity of the water. So those are all like the physical measurements we take just because what we're trying to do is show the variability in different channels across the braid plane because there's quite a lot so you'll see this one here is really turbid at the moment that's probably from snow melt not from flood and rain and so there are often little springs in the middle of the gravel and they're really clear or you can see this backwater here is really clear in comparison and then right on either side there's these Deep groundwater springs, that are also created by the braid plane but they're not connected by surface water, so they are really clear and um, uh, quite a different temperature as well. Yeah, so these channels in the middle can get up to 20 degrees in the summer and then down to uh, zero degrees in the winter. Those ones over there are generally 11, 12 degrees all year round. Yeah, it's kind of trying to tease out those differences with the, the physical measurements. Um, So, yeah, we'll pop those in. To investigate the
0: complexity of this river system, Holly is basically looking at three levels in the food web. Bottom to top, it goes invertebrates, fish, and then birds. And she's using two main methods. Isotopes to investigate the interconnectivity and movement of the different creatures, and biomass calculations to investigate how much life is across the whole river system at any one time. On this trip, she's working on those biomass measurements. For invertebrates, she's using something nicely abundant to help her quantify them.
1: Here we're using rocks. <laughs> so we pick the rock up and get the invertebrates, shake them off the rock into the net in the water, and then we put them into these little puddles that I'm just filling up here with ethanol. Unfortunately, these um, these guys have to die. They're <laughs> gonna
0: die for science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, I did read this very funny thesis once that had dedicated the whole thesis to all the bugs that had died for it, <laughs> for the knowledge that had been generated. It is quite sad but um, that's the only way we can really identify them and count them properly. And, yeah, So we're going to do five rocks, and each rock we also measure the length, width and height to try and get an estimate of surface area. And we also get that instrument there, which is called a bento torch. It measures chlorophyll A. And so we're going to measure how much chlorophyll is on the rocks as well because a lot of these invertebrates are herbivores and they'll just eat the algae or the periphyton off the rocks. So will these
0: little pottles um, with 70% ethanol and whatever bugs come off the rocks, they'll come back with you or you're going to identify them right now?
1: No, we take them back to the lab and we go through them all and we count every single one in there. And I also measure, or well, me and Ted, Ted helps me in the lab, <laughs> we measure the length of at least 10 of every species we find so that we can get estimates of our body length for all of them. And then there's a bunch of equations we use to turn that into dry weight.
0: So again, this is like the biomass that yeah. you're looking for, that quantity... Biomass of invertebrates, biomass amount of fish, biomass amount of birds. Yeah, yep, exactly. So what kind of things are you expecting to find?
1: Uh, that's one of the cool things about coming back here so often is you get to see how the populations change in different channels over time. So at the moment, I'm probably expecting the bulk of what's in this channel to be Delatidium mayflies, which are one of the most common mayflies in New Zealand. But we'll also probably get... Some stonefly species, so probably Zelandopyrla, Zelandobius and Megaleptopyrla if we're lucky. They're a little bit more patchy. I just say lucky because I think they're really cool, so I like seeing them. <laughs> um, and then your general midge larvae, so coronamids, and I think that'll probably be there in here. But then in certain times of the year, like May, April, when it's been stable for a lot longer, um, a lot of it there'll be more sandfly larvae, for example, or yeah. So it does change a bit. But. How many times have you done this? Uh, this is my tenth for the biomass sampling, not for the isotope. I've been doing that isotope work was from the first year, but I only went out maybe five months in a row for that.
0: So that's the invertebrates. How about the fish? What Holly does is a bit different to the traditional method, but she has her reasons.
1: Normally when you're getting fish densities, what we do is we block off the whole channel with one big net at both ends, and it'll be a 30 metre reach. And then you fish the whole reach three times. So you're um, trying to catch all the fish within the reach. But these channels, because they're so big and uh, gravel's hard to get them into and also... That is super time consuming and um, we're doing like four transects with uh, seven to twelve channels on each transect. We just, it's not super realistic to be able to do that within a good weather window. So we just do this sort of semi-quantitative rougher density estimate instead. So it's time for the Ghostbusters machine. (laughs) It really looks like a Ghostbusters machine doesn't it? (laughs)
0: They've got three buckets set out at intervals, and for her semi-quantitative method, they'll fish two metre by one metre reaches with three sweeps to make sure they get all the fish in that area. Holly and Zoe wade out into the channel. Holly with the electric fishing machine on her back, wand in her hand, and Zoe with the net set down tight to the gravel bed to catch the fish that pop out.
1: ready? Fishing. And up little fish. Four little fish in the first run (laughs) and they're probably all koaro. The fish
0: are dropped into the bucket at the side of the channel and Holly and Zoe wait out to do another two sweeps. Another few koaro pop up into the net.
1: Can you see how these are grey? Oh yeah. So normally koaro are a brownie gold with sort of like gold flecks. Um, These ones it's really cool they go a sort of grey milky colour in these channels in the, in the spring because of the spring freshes so they're much more camouflaged within the, the river. Oh, that is cool. It's really cool.
0: <laughs> Three sweeps done, they move up a few metres to the next bucket they've laid out. Three sweeps again, and then up to the final bucket. Fishing completed, it's time to count and measure the fish. So you're trying to catch one now with your hands so that you can measure the length of it?
1: Yeah. Um, Because what we're trying to get is sort of an estimate of total biomass. So that's the combination of all the fish in the river, how much sort of mass of fish is there. Because one fish is not always the same size as another fish, you know? So if I was just going to count them, we probably wouldn't get an accurate representation of the distribution of fish sizes here because a lot of these are really small, but then some of them are quite big. Um, That's 52, and it's quite cool because you can see the cohorts change over time. So in June we'll get lots of little ones that are sort of 39 to 45 millimetres long, and then this is an older cohort. And how big do these fish get up to? Um, They don't get massive. I think, I'm trying to remember what the biggest one I've caught here is, maybe... 12 centimetres but the big ones are quite hard to find because there's so few of them and there's so much river <laughs> Oh, this one's wriggling around a lot 45 these species of fish they are really good at climbing so you can see their pectoral fins they wiggle around like that and they can climb up dams and buckets and all sorts of things, it's quite cool so are these quadro essentially passing through or do they live here? Um, That's one of the things we don't actually know. (laughs) I would say some of them live here, so like this big one. I'm guessing he probably lives in this bit of the river. Um, 72? He's beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, so you can really see that nice milky colour. And then in those clear side channels you'll see they're brown with beautiful flecks of gold. And earlier
0: in the project you were capturing these fish but also taking little snips from their fins.
1: Yeah, so um, it's a really nice way to be able to get biological material from them for isotopes without having to kill them. Because the the way they used to do it was with um, muscles, so you had to kill them to get a muscle sample. Um, But now we can create these sort of uh, regressions between muscle and fin tissue, so we have a good idea of um, what the fish isotope signature is without killing the fish. 46. So, usually we take one of those little back fins because they can definitely swim without them fine. Can you see how it's wiggling up like that? Yeah, they yeah. sort of crawl up your hand. Oh, well. yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, little fish.
0: One channel done, they pack up and move to the next. As Holly said, on each of her four transects, she will do this seven to 12 times, doing multiple samples across five different channel types. Main braids, side braids, spring fed streams, tributary streams running down from the hills and deep groundwater streams. The first was a main braid, deep, wide, fast flowing, kind of milky white. We walk across a dry slope of gravel. At one stage, maybe during flood, this flowed with water. The second channel on the transect is a small side braid, shallow, narrow and clear. The difference is striking. As we look across the braids, the black-fronted terns, Tarapirohe, with their black caps, white cheek stripes, and pale grey bodies flit and waft above the many channels of water.
1: So he's probably just walking at the moment, looking for, or she, I don't know actually if that's a male or a female, but looking for invertebrates um, or fish in these channels. See how it's floating over. It might dive in, you never know. It's like two, four, six of them. Yeah. Yeah,
0: looks like it. And this time of year, what are they up to?
1: So they're, it's October, so they're um, sort of doing their courtship behaviours and getting ready to nest. They'll have started setting up colonies, probably. And they're um, just looking for fish and whatnot at the moment. Oh, you can see one landed on a nest just there. I don't know if you saw that. but yeah, they'll be hawking along the channels and looking for fish, and they take those fish back to their potential partners as part of their courtship behaviour. So it's a really nice time to actually see them eating fish. Later in the season, actually, I, uh, it seems like they eat more lizards around January and whatnot. It's it's really funny. You can kind of see it in their beaks as they're flying around. But right now, they're getting little fish gifts for their um,
0: romantic their potential friends. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> through Valentine, let's say. <laughs> yep. And so, so these are the black fronted terns, yep. but there are other birds that also call this river home from time to time.
1: Yep, so um, there are kaki here, there are ryebills, banded and then oyster catchers, black billed gulls. We, we usually get a big black billed gull colony up here somewhere. Um, by December, black bat gulls as well sometimes. And hawks, yeah, lots of of birds hang out around here. The hawks, like there's um, marshy areas created by the old braid plain down there that they hang out in more. Yeah, whereas most of the other birds nest on the actual gravel riverbed. And then the banded dotterels also, they can nest in the gravel or they can nest in the more uh, stable sort of rowlier vegetation patches. They don't need water to be right there.
0: Later on in the week, Holly will look for colonies and do bird counts of the black-fronted terns, banded dotterels and ryebills. Plus, she'll use a drone to take aerial photographs to compare to the other times she's been here, to see those changes in the braids. Her biomass counts will all feed into looking at the big picture of how stable this overall ecosystem is, even as parts of it fluctuate dramatically.
1: Because there's lots of different types of physical environments and channels that I'm measuring we'd expect there to be different things that live in them but also through time they will be affected in different ways so the main braid might be flooded very frequently whereas the spring might be attached to surface water flow only in a big flood so they're getting disturbed at different levels and what we mean by disturbed is that biomass is being taken out of the system and so what we'd expect because they're changing at different rates is that biomass is changing at different rates at the same time within one river so at a small scale when I measure a main braid through time I see that sometimes after a big flood there's hardly anything in there and then other times when it's been stable and warm for a while there's heaps and heaps of stuff and it's absolutely cooking like we saw before there were some really big mayflies and some quite big fish um those wouldn't be there after a big flood because Again, because of that gravel surface, all the rocks are tumbling over and there's no food and they're just getting washed out by the force of the water as well. But because we've got other areas in the same river that aren't getting flooded at the same time, they might continue to peak in biomass while other places are getting wiped out and there's nothing there. Traditionally, aquatic ecologists would say, they would look at the main braided and they'd say, gosh, braided rivers are just deserts of biodiversity, there's nothing in them. But in reality, if we start aggregating all those different patches into one ecosystem, we see that those peaks and troughs cancel out and it might actually be a lot more stable than we think at a bigger scale of interactions and movement.
0: That's where the isotope work that Holly has done comes in. The stable carbon and nitrogen isotope ratios that she looked for in the fin clips of the fish, the dried-out samples of invertebrates and blood samples taken from the birds has let her get a glimpse at the interwoven dance that all of these play across the whole river system.
1: You can think of isotopes like little biological signatures where some of them, like carbon isotopes, they can change in space and others, like the nitrogen isotope, will change as it is consumed. So it so as a food resource moves up a food chain, that nitrogen isotope signature will change. And I was using them to look at both food resources in space. So where on the braid plane is this population or individual getting its food from and also how many links is that food resource going through before it gets to this individual or population. I was asking that question across a bunch of different species. So for birds I was looking at ryebills, dotterel, and black-fronted terns. And then for the fish I looked at common bully, upland bully, koaro and I got some trout as well. And then the invertebrates as well. The invertebrates were primarily used as Uh, source signatures so that base signature of where is so I was saying if these are the base of the food web which they're not technically algae is the base of the food web but um you gotta start somewhere yeah exactly (laughs) then um do they have different signatures across the braid plane which luckily they did (laughs) because actually you don't know unless you go and sample and look and then If they do, can we track those signatures into the fish and the birds so we know where the fish and the birds are getting their food from within the braid plane? And you were able to do that? Yeah. So we can see that, for example, some populations of Coado were getting some of their food from isolated springs and then they were coming in and getting another 60 or 50% of their food from the central gravel braid plane. Um, another thing we could tell was that banded dotterels, as so as chicks, they were getting aquatic resources, but as adults, they were eating much more terrestrial food sources, so like the spiders and the gravel beds and butterflies and that sort of thing, whereas the chicks were probably eating caddis flies and mayflies, either as they emerged or from the slow flowing channels next to where their territories are.
0: Braided rivers are naturally rare, but also endangered ecosystems in Aotearoa. Some were destroyed in the past to enable hydroelectricity generation. Today, many, especially in the lowlands, have gravel and water extracted from them. Their gravel floodplains are being severely constrained by land encroachment, and they've been invaded by non-native weeds, which bind up the gravel and prevent the natural braid movements. These weeds also provide hiding places for invasive predators. Instead of wide, multi-channel, variable braid ecosystems, we're left with narrower gravel plains with just a few braids, missing that heterogeneity that seems to allow for built-in resilience in the system. As a result, of course, the endemic flora and fauna that call this habitat home have taken a massive hit. Holly's hoping her work looking at the ecosystem as a whole will help us not just understand how braided rivers work, but also what we can do to manage them better and conserve what's important to us,
1: including the threatened bird species that live here. We might do all this trapping effort and think, oh, thank goodness there's no predators left, and then along comes climate change and land encroachment combined, and we start getting these massive floods and areas where are very homogenous, so there's only one chattel. Everything gets flooded at once, and even though the birds aren't getting predated on anymore they don't have anything to eat because they don't have any options and that's one of the big questions that we sort of are asking in terms of the birds is like well there's all these other very important things that allow them to persist in the environments where they've chosen to persist that we might be changing at the same time while focusing on something like predation which while it's very important is not the whole story.
0: Thanks to Holly Harris and Zoe Hamilton of the University of Canterbury Te Wharei Wangana o Waitaha Ko clerkin kanana te kaiho o tēnei hotaka i awhina mai a William Ray Rawa ko Ellen Rikers I produced this one with help from William and Ellen Sound Engineering was by William Saunders and Tim Watkin is Executive Producer of Podcasts and Series at RNZ Kia whaea i te au hurihanga i te tahi taupanga paiaki kia koe Follow the Hour Changing World podcast on your favourite podcast app. Our show webpage is at rnz.co.nz slash where you can see some photos and videos from the Cass River. You can say hi to us by emailing ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz or message us on Facebook or X where we are at RNZ Té ná i Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Ken Cannon. Have a great week. Kia pai the wiki.